Let's continue worship with a reading from Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Man, you guys are singing good. I, I cannot wait until Easter. Uh, I'm Pastor Scott. I'm executive pastor here at Riverstone. It's my joy to be able to uh, share with you this morning. And uh, Easter is two weeks away. Can you believe it? So get those, uh, get those Easter bonnets ready. You know what those are. Uh, I mean, used to be, we used to deck out. You remember those days you went to church when you were growing up, the Easter bonnets and the seersucker suits. Anybody still have one of those? On the, anybody know what that is? Okay, one, two, three, four, four, five. All right, there we go. Um, ask them. Okay. <laughs> well, we are in the season of Lent. It's leading up to Easter. And uh, Lent is probably not on your top five favorite seasons of the year. Uh, I doubt any of you said, man, I just can't wait until we get to Lent. Uh, I just love fasting and messages on repentance. Uh, probably not so much. Uh, Advent, Christmas, yeah. Uh, Easter, absolutely. Pentecost, yeah. But Lent, eh, maybe not so much. And yet Lent has been a part of the, the Christian calendar for over 1,600 years, all the way back to 400 A.D., and the church that I grew up in did not really observe Lent. Um, that's why I grew up thinking it is the stuff that's in the pockets of your jeans or in your clothes dryer. I had no idea what that was. And I was wondering the other day, why, why didn't we do Lent growing up? Uh, it wasn't that we didn't talk about sin in the church I grew up in, but it was primarily other people's sin. And so maybe it was the discomfort of talking about our sin that said, let's just not do that. We're just going to pass a Catholic thing. You know, we'll let them do it. Um, but we probably really should have been, uh, been very um, spiritually healthy for us too. Uh, and why is that? It's because Lent confronts us with our needs. It confronts us with our weakness. It exposes the place in our, our life that we would rather just kind of veneer over and cover up. But instead, it invites us to bring those before God. And yes, it is uncomfortable, but it's absolutely necessary to allow the cleansing light of Jesus to shine in our soul and for us to really be free in all areas. Lent is a season of honesty, and we had to get real. Uh, it's a season of humility, about being real about the condition of our soul. And we have to be able to be honest with ourselves and with God that, yeah, there are some dead places in my heart. Uh, there are some hard places in my heart. Maybe darkness has kind of been trying to creep in, and it calls us out if we've been drifting. Uh, drifting is uh, very easy to do. Any, anybody ever been tubing before? You know, you know what that's like. It takes absolutely no effort. All you got to do is just kind of kick back and let the water do the work for you. It takes no effort. It's really slow. Uh, you just kind of move along. It's pretty comfortable. And everybody else around you is doing it too. And so it's kind of a, a very easy thing to drift. But, but drifting takes us somewhere. It may seem like it's very slow. It's kind of like drifting in a, a lazy river. Everything is great until you hear the roar of rapids 
Uh, I have a friend who actually fell asleep. It was so comfortable, he just fell asleep in his tube. And he woke up just before he went over the waterfalls. Thank goodness he, he did wake up before and not after. Um, Lent is a season to help us avoid that kind of disaster in our life spiritually. It helps us wake up. It helps us bring our heart before God and allow him to search us and to bring life into dead places. And I love the way that, that Chris has been pointing toward Easter all through the, throughout the season of Lent. He's pointing us toward just two weeks away. I can't wait. I feel like there's going to be just an explosion of joy on that day. Because, but Lent helps us prepare for that and get ready for that. Lent helps us recognize our desperate need for God. Amen? It does. As Scripture says in Psalm 63, David wrote, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly or desperately I seek you. My soul, my soul thirst for you. My body longs for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It's that kind of thirst and hunger for God that gets awakened as we move through this season. And Chris has talked a lot about the wilderness. Um, you know, Lent is kind of a season of wilderness, a time of testing, a time of refining, going through the refining fire of God. It brings out impurities. They're exposed. They're dealt with. There's cleansing that takes place. And what's amazing is that the Lord calls us into these places of wilderness. He calls us to come out there as part of the journey. Remember, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for a time of testing. God led the people of Israel out into the wilderness. His intention was that they go through the wilderness. They ended up spending 40 years there. I don't think that was the original idea. Paul was drawn out into the wilderness where he spent time with God and God alone after he was saved so that God could work these uh, foundational things inside of his, his life. So God calls us into these season. He calls us to lay aside the busyness we've been going through and do some work on our soul. Lent is a time of doing some work in our soul. Some of you are working in your garden right now, so that means probably breaking up the hard ground, throwing out the rocks, pulling up some weeds. Well, we're doing that with our soul during this season. We're preparing our soul to receive new life that God wants to bring inside of us. So we've used a lot of agricultural terms, and some of those terms got me thinking, got my mind kind of spinning a little bit about the, 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 the examples of life, the symbolism of life of being on a journey. And in the journey of life, there are mountaintops and there are valleys, just like when you go on a real journey. There are mountaintop experiences, and those are great. We love those. And then there are tough valleys. I prefer the mountains. Uh, I'm kind of a mountain guy. Uh, you know, that would also be Duck. Duck is really in the mountain. I'm, I'm a mountain guy. He's a mountain man. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but I love the mountains, man. I, I just do. There's just something spectacular about being in the mountains. The air is very clear. You can see forever. You get great perspective from the summit of a mountain, where you've been, where you are, and where you're going. And it's just absolutely spectacular. If you go out west, you know that you can see mountains an hour or more before you ever get there. And it's, it's kind of a little bit aggravating because the kids are probably saying, well, we, are we there yet? Are we there yet? You can see them. They're there for a long ways off. But you can see so far. And when they just stand before you with this domestic, this uh, majestic reality that just shines and just calls you to them. Uh, places like Rocky Mountain National Park or Glacier National Park have been some of the favorite places that I've been. Uh, but even the Vermilion Cliffs of uh, Arizona, uh, where when you get up on the top of it and you look down on the road, I think it's Highway 84, you look down and 18 wheelers look like ants. 
You know, and you, that's amazing. That is just absolutely amazing. Or Bighorn up in Wyoming. So many different places that, we, that I've been that I just absolutely love. And on a clear night, when you look up, you feel like you can actually reach up and touch the heavens. You're just so close to them. We all have those kind of experiences in our life, mountaintop experiences. I mean, right now you can probably think of some that you go, yeah, when I got saved or when I was filled with the Spirit or with the birth of my child. I mean, you know, there are all mountaintop experiences that we all have. But life is not all mountaintops, is it? There are valleys. And if it were all mountaintops, I was thinking about this philosophically, if it was all mountaintops, well, that would actually be a plateau. Okay, and that's kind of boring, you know. But life has valleys, low points, hard seasons, and you may be in one right now. Uh, someone once said, a friend of mine once said, uh, I'm either heading into one, coming out of one, or smack dab in the middle of one. And it kind of feels that way sometimes. Valleys are part of life. And valleys physically and also emotionally can be very long, very dark, very difficult, even depressing. Uh, when you go through a valley, uh, you probably think, this is a good place for an ambush. You know, you feel very vulnerable when you look around because you're at a disadvantage and you're in a weak state. The Bible talks about both mountains and valleys, physically and also uh, in, in a symbolic way. You've got mountains like Mount Sinai where uh, uh, Moses received the Ten Commandments or Mount Carmel where Elijah called down fire or Mount Zion where Jerusalem actually is built or Mount Eremos where Jesus gave the Beatitudes. Uh, uh, he taught the Sermon on the Mount or the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was transformed into the very glory of God who was revealed upon uh, through him. But you've also got valleys, uh, the Valley of the Dead Dry Bones, you know, it feels like something out of a, a, a horror movie. Uh, the Valley of Gehenna, we'll, we'll mention later. The Valley of Achor, or the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And they're usually characteristic in the Bible of challenges, of difficulties, of testings. And like I said a moment ago, you may find yourself in one right now. Um, long seasons of dryness, maybe, in your life. Lent helps to expose these valleys in our life. It calls us to be willingly honest and humble about them and to expose our weakness before God and maybe even before others and to express our desire to move beyond those valleys. But when we do, what we find is that God will meet us in the valley, that we're not alone there, and he takes us beyond those. So today, we're going to look at seven physical valleys in the Bible. So this is the seven valleys. Each one is uh, powerful and symbolic and significant in many ways. And they also help expose the condition of our hearts. So what you may see as we take this little journey this morning is that you may recognize some of these valleys. You may say, man, I'm there right now. I've been there. Or I've got a friend who's in one of these. And you may be able to identify with them. And I want you to, to notice as we go through these valleys um, what God is saying to you. Open your heart right now and say, Lord, just speak to me in the midst of these valleys right now. Help me get your perspective of where I'm at and why I'm here and where I'm headed. So the first one, the Valley of Sedim. This, uh, I'll, I'll read from, from Scripture, uh, the explanation of this. In Genesis 14, it says, Now the Valley of Sidim, actually it is, was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, and the rest fled for the hills. They just headed for the hills. This is the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah were located. And it, it had a bunch of, it really was the pits. It had a bunch of tar pits uh, that were in there. 
And so it was a dangerous place to go through. There were, there were tar pits or slime pits, one, uh, one uh, commentator said, just very slimy and messy, easy to slide into. And this whole valley, though, symbolically, spiritually, was known as a place of sin. It's, it's where you go to do whatever you want to do, and you, whatever you do there stays there, you know, kind of like Las Vegas, I guess. Um, had never thought about that parallel. Sorry, Las Vegas. But... Um, Anyway, it was, it's just known as that kind of place. The, the scripture even expresses this about it, that God calls it outrageous and exceedingly grave, the sins that took place in Sodom and Gomorrah. I thought about uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi's statement about Moss Eisley air, uh, spaceport. Some of you may be able to quote this for us. You will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Yeah, pretty much describes the valley of, uh, of Sidem also. Sin is like this valley. Uh, it's full of traps. There may be parts of it that seem very attractive, but there are pits there. There are sinking sand. There are traps. And we may be able to navigate through it and think, hey, I'm doing just fine. I'm navigating. I'm missing these things for a while. But it's easy in the rush of life to simply slide into one and find ourselves over the edge, going down where we don't want to be. It's a dangerous place. We were never designed to live spiritually in that kind of uh, surrounding. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you guys know, uh, in the midst of judgment upon these wicked cities, is judgment is literally raining down upon them. The fact is that even though judgment came upon that city because it was not repentant, God was at work redeeming. God was drawing people to himself. Anyone who would come to himself, he was rescuing, offering grace to those who would come. If during our journey through Lent, the Holy Spirit convicts you, if he touches that area and he exposes to your heart that something is sin, God's revelation is that we don't have to stay there. God's revelation is, I'm exposing this to free you from it, to set you free from it, and he made provision for the rescue. Scripture says in John 3, 16, we know this, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now catch the second part. For God did not send his son to condemn the world. And some of us have a misconception of God and God's heart toward us. God did not send his son to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Not to condemn but to convict and to rescue. Jesus came on a search and rescue mission to rescue our hearts from the tar pits, from the valley of Sidon. Sidon. Uh, there are other pits that we find ourselves in life. I thought about this a little bit. Not just sin, but there are other things that are pits in our life that we can find ourselves in. And when I was growing up, we used to have an expression, you know, how's your life right now? Well, man, it's just the pits right now. I think there's another expression that's used now. But uh, back then it was the pits, okay? And we would get away with that. Beth Moore, you guys know Beth Moore. Uh, she's a great teacher, great author. She wrote a book called Get Out of That Pit. And uh, it's a good book. I recommend it. She mentions that there are all kinds of pits that we can often find ourselves in. And she defined it, a pit as a dark, lonely, visionless place. It is not somewhere we want to be. Now, I hope you're not in one today, but you, you may be. And, you know, the question is, well, how do we get into pits? And, and this is what Beth Moore said. She goes, sometimes we may be pushed into a pit by others or by circumstances. I didn't plan on getting into this circumstance. It's not where I want to be, but something happened beyond my control, we say, and we ended up into this pit, and we don't want to be there. Sometimes we may just slip into a pit 
because we've been just living too carelessly close to the edge, living life on the edge, and we end up just sliding in. And then sometimes, she says, and I love this, because we just haul off and jump into a pit all by ourselves. We aim, jumped, square into the bullseye of the pit. And the truth is, uh, we've probably been in all three of those pits uh, numerous times. I know that I have. To be honest about it, we find ourselves in these places. And here's what God wants us to know. God is with us in the pit. We are not alone, and he offers a way out. David wrote this. He said, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth and a hymn of praise to our God. God's desire is to lift us up. Amen. Uh, The next one, the valley of... I'm not even going to attempt it. Um, I did have to do some research on this, and I think it kind of speaks for itself. You ever found yourself in that pit? Yeah, not, yeah, been there. I have a friend, I have a friend, he's a pastor, who actually preached a message, and the title of his message was Stuck in the Valley of it's, it's actually pronounced uh, shatim, you know. Yeah, at least that's the way the Baptists pronounce it. And, uh, but it is. I think that's the actual pronunciation of it. And uh, this particular valley, uh, that's stuck in your mind, though. I know, I know. Sorry about that. But uh, Shatim is on the east side of the Jordan River. And this is the Jordan River that Jesus was baptized in. This is the Jordan River that the, the people of Israel crossed over to come into the Promised Land. The last encampment that they had before they crossed was in, in this place, this Valley of Shatim. And they had been wandering out in the wilderness, remember the story, for something like 40 years before they crossed the Promised Land. But you may remember that 40 years before this moment, they had been to the same place before. They'd been to the same place, and they had sent spies into the land. And, and they said, you know, God has told us that this is our land, but let's send some spies and check this thing out. So they, they go and they scout the land, and they come back and they say, well, this is an amazing land. And it's just like God said. It's flowing with milk and honey. It is an awesome place. And we brought back some grapes just to show you. This is what the grapes look like. And I've got a picture. That's, that's really out of that valley. That's some grapes. And it was, they're so big. You know, it's not like the little bag you, you pick up at the grocery store. It took several guys to haul these things back and go, this is a, this is a good place to go shopping. Uh, this is a great place to live. It is, it is great. But here's, there's one problem. The people are big too. <laughs> and comparing ourselves to them, we look like and felt like grasshoppers that are just under their feet. And anytime we make comparisons, it gets us in trouble. When we make the mistake of comparing ourselves to the challenge, we're in trouble, rather than comparing God to the challenge. Those are big grapes. Those were big people. But God is bigger. God is bigger. And that is a huge thing to remember. Um, the comparisons always get us in trouble uh, in so many different ways. So what did they do? They turned around, and they went back into the wilderness, and most of them died out there in the wilderness. Fast forward 40 years. They're back at the same place. Joshua is now leading a whole new generation, and the same question comes up. Do we go in? Do we, do we go into this? Do we believe God? Do we trust God? Or do we go back into the wilderness, or do we just camp here and, and get stuck in Okay, is, is that what we do? We have a decision. This is the valley of decision. And we all find ourselves in this valley many times, probably every day. 
We find ourselves, do I trust God? Do I obey God in this? Do I move forward and obey him in this area? Or what do I do? Lent is a, a, a time that places us in this valley to help us confront the things that could be hindering our very life, that could be holding us back, and allow, allow us to ask questions before the, God, before the Lord. Lord, what do I do with this? What do you want me to do? And then we make that decision. God is in the valley of decision. He will meet you there, and through his word and through his Holy Spirit, he guides us if we will ask him. We don't have to get stuck in the valley of Shatim. Okay, number three, the Valley of Kidron. Uh, today, if you go to Jerusalem, and you can on the eastern side of the city, the eastern wall, you can look across to the Mount of Olives where Jesus prayed. still there. still have olive trees there, too, that have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And in between these two, Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is, and the Mount of Olives over here where Jesus prayed, there's a valley. And if you look at that valley today, uh, it's, it's a cemetery. It's a cemetery. I think we've got a picture of it. Yep, there it is right there. This is part of it. You feel like Indiana Jones when you go down into this thing. It's absolutely uh, historic. Samson is buried there. Samuel is buried there. Absalom is buried there. Zechariah is buried there. In fact, I think that that is his grave site, the kind of fancy one there with the columns is Zechariah. It's very historic and it's very fascinating. And you look at it and you go, wow, look at this. But you know what? It's a cemetery. It's a place of sadness. It's a place of grief. It is a lonely place. Many, many, many tears. And I don't know if you can tell this, but what looks like just white behind there uh, are little bitty boxes. Those, those are stones over all the graves, and there are thousands of them, thousands of them. Many people have wept and grieved over those places. This is a place of grief. There are many different types of grief that we can experience in life. The grief of losing a loved one in death is piercing. The, the, the grief of losing a child to sin, where they just wander off, is, is also heartbreaking. Losing a job, losing a home, or a marriage, or the grief of regret of mistakes in our life. Those are all things that cause grief that can get very complicated. Even grieving some good things that happen. When our kids grow up, it's a good thing, you know, from... Uh, from diapers to no diapers, that's something to celebrate, isn't it? But it also, there's a little bit of grieving of seeing them move from the little cuddly stage to the can't stand still stage and, and knowing, okay, they're moving in to become a teenager. Ooh, you know, and now they're growing up and they're getting ready to move out. And those are natural times of grieving because our heart aches during those times. And it's, it's not sin, it's not wrong to grieve. In fact, it's right and it's healthy to be honest about it. But God doesn't want us to be stuck there. And so he says in Isaiah 53, we're reminded that Jesus was acquainted with grief, that he was a man of sorrows, and that he has taken our infirmities, and some translations will say he has taken our grief and he's carried our sorrows. And so when we grieve, we do not grieve alone. When we are broken, we're not broken alone. God is there with us. The Bible says in Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. He draws near those who mourn and he comforts. He comforts us. He draws near to us. So if you find yourself in the Valley of Kidron, you're not alone. God wants to be with you there and he wants to draw close to you and comfort you and take you beyond this valley. The next is the Valley of Elah. Uh, this is the valley that David and Goliath faced off 
Uh, Goliath is there shouting curses, mocking God, mocking the people of God. Anyone who would trust in God, he's mocking. You're trusting a God you can't see. You're trusting a God who can't rescue you. I can see my strength. You have nothing. And he just stood there and mocked God and mocked the people and mocked them for trusting his promises. And the Bible tells us that the men of Israel, the army of Israel, was dismayed. They were discouraged. They were broken and that terrified. And it says literally that they ran from him as he stood there mocking them. Goliath may not be alive today, but the spirit of Goliath is. Who wants to intimidate and bring fear to us and make us just cowered down. All throughout our culture, all throughout our media, our institutions, our social media, believers are mocked. They're intimidated. Anyone who has faith is mocked in our culture today. And many times we'll find in our heart just kind of a spirit of cowardice where we, we cower down. We won't speak. We won't share our faith. We're afraid of being mocked and being made fun of. And as a result, we oftentimes live just like the men of Israel, paralyzed, afraid, cowards. So we hide in the shadows, timid and weak. This is a valley of fear. This is a valley of shame. It is in this valley that David comes, uh, not as an example of us or a type of us. We, we like to tell it that way when we're teaching little kids. You know, you need to be David and get your stones and slay Goliath. But David is a picture of Jesus. It's Jesus that comes to rescue. It's Jesus who steps in and, and, and rallies the people and destroys the enemy. Um, David would say this to, to Goliath, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I will, I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give your carcass to, uh, and the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beast of the earth. And the whole earth will know that there is a God in Israel. And those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. It's there that David faced Goliath and defeated him, the valley of Elah. And God is with you in that valley if you find yourself in that valley today. You don't have to be afraid. We, God's perfect love casts out fear. It rallies our heart. The next is the Valley of Gehenna. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus talked about Gehenna on more than one occasion. The definition of Gehenna means basically a place of misery or a place of torment. It's used to describe both a physical place but also in the Bible to describe a spiritual eternal Gehenna or we would call it hell. It is said in the historic place that King Ahaz and Manasseh uh, both sacrificed their sons to the false god Moloch and they threw their bodies in Gehenna. I think I've got a picture of Moloch. Yeah, there is a, good, a horrible looking creature there. Uh, during those days, though, this, this is a valley that's right off of Jerusalem uh, to the uh, west of Jerusalem. When you stand there, you can look down into the valley of Gehenna. And during the days of the temple sacrifices, which is up on the Temple Mount, the sacrifices would be made of the bulls and everything, and the blood from the sacrifices would flow down the hill and they would flow into Gehenna. I, I thought about that, how interesting that the sacrifices of the, the, the blood of the, of the sacrifices would flow down into this, this horrible place. In Jesus' day, Gehenna was a garbage dump. 
It was the garbage dump of Jerusalem. People would just walk out there and throw their garbage over the cliff into Gehenna. They would throw dead animals over into the cliff. They would throw dead bodies over into the cliff. And there the garbage would rot and it would be burned. And so there was a constant stench rising out of this valley. And if the wind was just right, you couldn't bear it. And there was, they would burn the, 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 uh, the garbage and everything down there. So there was a constant fire going on in Gehenna. It was clearly a place of misery, a picture of doom, and uh, a horrible place. And even when I stood there and looked down into the valley of Gehenna, it still had a haunting feel to it. Even though they tried to build parks and things around it, there's still a steep part of the valley. I think I may have a picture of that. I'm not sure. Uh, I may put it out of order. Uh, got it? Thank you. Uh, but it's still kind of a haunting feel down through there. It just seems to be, lead into darkness and off into eternity. Many times we may feel like that our life has ended up in Gehenna, into the garbage heap, discarded, forsaken, in misery, alive and still breathing and yet thrown away and of no use and no good anymore. Listen to David's prayer in Psalm 139. He speaks to this. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. But if I make my bed in Sheol, this is the same thing, Gehenna. Behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. God meets us there. We're not alone. The next valley is the Valley of Jezreel. It's a place of battles. Uh, many, many battles have been fought in this, this valley throughout history. Gideon faced the Midianites and the uh, uh, Amalekites there. King Saul and his son Jonathan were actually killed in this valley in battle with the Philistine army. Many, many battles have, have been fought over the, the years. And if you go there and you look at this, and I've got a picture of it. It's a very beautiful picture right here. I mean, like, what a wonderful place to live. But you also have to realize, wow, what a place for a battle. It is the perfect battlefield. You can see the hills around it, surrounding it, where you can mount and get visual, but you also, you've got the valley down there, and it is a perfect place for battle. It looks like something uh, out of Lord of the Rings. You know, there you go. You can just picture orcs, you know, fighting, uh, what do they fight? Fairies or... Uh, what do they fight? Help me out here. Elves. Elves. Mortals. Mortals. Iron Man. Uh, you know, superheroes. All kinds of things. They fight everybody down there. Uh, it's, it's perfect. You got Mount Carmel off, the, you know, where the, where the sacrifice, uh, where, where Elijah faced off and brought the prayed down fire. Uh, you've also got, uh, got Mount Megiddo on one side of the valley. This is also known as the Valley of Armageddon. The Bible prophesies a future massive battle, a battle, the mother of all battles to come in the ages where all of the forces of evil will face off with God's forces. Uh, we all find ourselves in a fight in life. The battle that we're in is real. You say, but I don't like battles. Sorry. You know, I, I had someone once come to the church and I was preaching on spiritual warfare and they said, we don't like spiritual warfare. We're never coming back. And I said, you're just stepping out into the war. 
You know, it's not a matter of I want to go fight. It's the matter. It's the fact that we are in a war, a spiritual battle that ex- simply exists. But we're not fighting against orcs, you know, or fighting in Halo. Uh, the Bible is very clear. It says our our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. We're called to fight. Last fall, I was reading a book, and it was a book on inner healing and how God heals our heart and our mind. We go through things in life. It was a real good book, and uh, the the writer would give uh, some teaching and some scripture, and then he would give you an assignment. You know how books do that oftentimes. Okay, this this week, pray this or do that. And so the assignment, um, there's one particular week he'd been teaching on uh, the Father's love, the Father's heart for us, and how God is our Heavenly Father and how he loves us so deeply. And so he said, this week, pray that God would, sh- would show you his heart. He would demonstrate to you the Father's heart in a fresh way. That was the assignment. And so I thought, cool, I, that's a good prayer. I'll pray that. Now, here's what I'm expecting. When you pray for love to be demonstrated to you, you kind of, you kind of think, you know, this, this soothing honey from heaven just flowing down or God coming and wrapping his arms around you and saying, Oh, you are my son. I delight. And he does that. That's, that's legitimate. That's real. That's what I was expecting. Okay? That's kind of, okay, yeah, this will be a great experience. So I'm driving down the road in my little Jeep, and I'm just listening to some music, and I kind of pray when I drive, and I'm just kind of fellowshipping with the Lord. And then I, I felt like the Lord's speaking to me, but it wasn't what I expected. And you know what he said? Fight! And I thought, this is, what is this? What is this? came again. Fight! And I thought, this feels like this is the Lord, but I don't get this. What? What? Fight! And it was like a coach or a dad on the side of a of match where a son is out and he's in a fight, except he's getting the snot beat out of him. Okay, can I say snot? Okay. I did, and it's already out there, and it's on the internet, everybody. So it's done. It's done. Glad I didn't mispronounce the other one, right? And it, but it's, it's, a, it's a coaching call. Fight. Get up and fight. Don't just lay there and let the enemy beat you anymore. And I was going, I feel like this is God, but this is crazy. This is crazy. What, what? But then the Lord began to apply it to me, as the Holy Spirit often does through Scripture. And he brought, you know, your fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not a fight against people but it's against spiritual forces. Your fight is against whatever it may be that is assaulting your soul, that's beating you up, that's kicking you, that's making you uh, cower down. Fight it. Fight it. As I reflected on it, I went home in a journal that night, I realized that God had shown me the father's love as only a father would. No father would want to see their son being beat, being beat up unnecessarily. No father would. He would say, get up and fight. But here's the deal. God has equipped us to be able to fight. Whatever the fiery darts are that are coming against our soul, whatever the fiery darts are that are coming against you right now, God wants you to fight those with his armor. He wants you to fight those with his strength. He wants to fight on your behalf. We don't fight alone. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. This is God speaking to us. 
I will never leave you or forsake you. Let's get nerdy for a minute, okay? Let's do a little Greek. In this little sentence here, which translated very beautifully and very simply, in the Greek, there are actually five negatives in this sentence. It is, I will never, and the Greek is, may, which is translated, never, absolutely never leave you. Nor, ume, okay, in the Greek, never, never, absolutely, never forsake you. There is a double negative and a triple negative in that. I will never, absolutely, never leave you, nor never, never, absolutely, never forsake you. Bad English. Good Greek, good theology. Good word from God. What do you think God's trying to get across to us? I will never, 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 never leave you. You are not in the battle by yourself. You are not alone. I will never leave you. Never. Powerful truth. The last valley, uh, and you're going, man, I didn't think we'd ever get out of these valleys. It's like Lent. Thought it would never end. Okay, but it will. Uh, the last valley is the Valley of Achor. And uh, it is the last valley. Can I get an amen? Okay, there you go. All right. The Valley of Achor is significant. We find it in the book of Joshua. Uh, the people have crossed over, and we were talking about this a minute ago, the people have crossed over the Jordan River, and now they're in the promised land. And as they get into the promised land, they come face to face with this huge stone fortress called Jericho, most powerful fortress uh, in the world during this day, made of stone. And they stand there and they go, we know we're supposed to go in, but look, what do we do? This thing stands before us. We can't, we can't go through it. We can't go around it. It's a massive force. What are we going to do? And you've heard the story. You know, God gives them a strategy that makes absolutely no sense militarily whatsoever. It's get the people and get the band, you know, the horns and everything, and march around the city for six days, one time. And blow the horns and everybody be quiet and just walk around. Just kind of a little showcase here. People are going to get on the walls and they're going to look. And there you go. Around them. And then on the seventh day, I want you to go out there and I want you to march seven times. And this time I want the horns to blow. And when you finish the seventh time, let the horns blow like crazy. Let them rip. And I want all you people to shout with everything within you. And God's going to show up. And he did. The walls of the city miraculously fell down. And they, they plundered the city. They took the city and in record time. Uh, and it was a huge miracle. It's, a, it's what you call a real mountaintop experience. However, on the hills of this victory, there are a couple of tragic mistakes that come. There are a couple of tragic valleys. The first was that when God said, I'm going to give you the city, walk around it, and on the seventh day, seven times, shout, boom, it's going to come down. He said, but listen, when you go in, I don't want you taking the gold. I don't want you taking the silver. I don't want you taking the idols. Of this. I don't want you, and they're called the devoted things. And the reason why is because they have been devoted to their false gods. I don't want you to touch these things. I want you to be defiled by them. I don't want them to pollute your heart. I don't, so don't be packing those things away. I want you just to leave those there. Don't be tempted. Don't be seduced by those things. And almost everybody obeyed, but a few did not. There's a guy named Achan and his family, and they get into the city, and they go, hey, you know what? These guys are they're gone. They're not going to need this stuff. So to the victor goes of war go the what? The spoil. So they disobeyed. They took some things. They just kind of hid them away. The second tragic mistake is after defeating Jericho, the next challenge that the people faced was a little outpost city 
named Ai. And it's just like it sounds, Ai. And the people decided, they looked at it, and they go, you know, Jericho was big, and we took it. Ai is nothing. It's a little squanty town out there. It's a small challenge. We don't need to send all of our troops in there. We don't need to send all of our people. We, we got this. This is, this is a no-brainer. They didn't pray. They didn't ask God. They said, this is a small thing, and we can handle this. I can handle this. This is a little thing. I kind of made an assumption, one that I can identify with making so many times. You know, I got this. I can handle this. And what happened is they got their butts kicked. Can I say butts? Okay, I did. Uh, they got their butts kicked. In fact, in fact they, 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 not got, they not only got beat, they got chased back. And AI chased them like, like little whipped dogs with their tail between their legs all the way back home. And Joshua is just beside himself. And he's thinking, what is going on here? What has happened? Has God forsaken us? What's, what is going on? And God says, listen, I want to talk to you, but I want you guys to pray, and I want you to fast, and I want you to seek me. Because there's some sin in the camp. There's some disobedience going on here. And God calls him to a time of, of repentance and soul-seeking and confession. Achan, he comes up and he ends up confessing. confessing. And when he does, and we put the verse up here, you can see a downward spiral that takes place, one that probably every one of us, no, one that we, every one of us can identify with. No probably about it. Achan said to Joshua, or answered Joshua, and he said, Truly, I sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw the spoil, okay, number one, Saul, the beautiful cloak of Sinor and the 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted. I coveted them and third, I took them. And see, they are hidden in the dirt inside of my tent. Look at the downward, downward spiral. I saw, I delighted in it. I delighted in lesser things. This is, this is, God said, leave this alone. It won't satisfy me. But yet I saw it. I desired it. I coveted it. I, I looked at it. And the more that I looked at it, the more I wanted it. So I took it. I met my own needs, my own way, met my own desires, my own way. And then what did I do? I hid it. I covered my sin. I hid it in darkness. That is a recipe for trouble. And it cost not only him, but it cost many others. Many others died. It cost uh, the honor of the, the whole nation was ashamed, was defeated. Achor means trouble. It is a valley of trouble. And every time the people of Israel later on would think about the valley of Achor, they would think about the trouble that they were in, the trouble that they experienced there, the mistakes that they made, the regrets that they had, the blunders that they had made. Lent calls us to acknowledge our valleys of acor. It calls us to acknowledge our valleys of trouble and what troubles our soul and to bring those things before the light of the Lord to come clean. Lent calls us to acknowledge all of our valleys that we've experienced, whatever they may be, whether it's sins or pits or fear or shame or grief or hurt or cowardness, whatever it may be, our hurts, our hangups, our habits, to bring those things before the Lord to cast them before the Lord, to, to cast them before. You know where Peter talks about casting all of our anxieties before the Lord, casting all of our worries before the Lord? Remember who's, write, who's writing this? A fisherman. A fisherman is. So when you think, when Peter talks about casting, what does it look like? It looks like this. You cast it. 
You cast it not like, not like this, okay? But you cast it out there. So what he's saying is whatever it is, whatever's weighing us down, whatever's burdening us, whatever the, man, chunk it toward the Lord. Don't hold on to it. Get, get it out. Get it going. Chunk it over there. And we all have a decision to make with these things that the Lord highlights. What will I do with this? Will I let it form a wedge between me and between God? Or will I, will I, will I allow it to harden my heart? to make excuses, to shift blame, or will I allow these things, whatever it may be, to crowd me to Christ? Let that expression sink into your heart. Crowd me to Christ. We can allow the hurts, the hang-ups, the problems, the, the mistakes, everything, to, to either drive us away from God or to crowd us to Christ, to drive us to Him as we acknowledge our need for Him. Uh, one man one time wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Sorrows. You know, you can just fuss about them, cuss about them, or you can let them crowd you to Christ. They're invitation for healing because God desires to heal. God desires to forgive, not to condemn, not to kick us, but to reveal his glory and his love for us, the heart of God. We're not alone in the valley. Whatever valley we may find ourselves in, we're not alone. He may not have caused us to be there, but he can redeem us in the middle of it. We don't have to waste it. The Valley of um, Achor shows up one more time. This is in conclusion. Valley of Achor shows up one more time in the, in the Bible, in the book of Hosea. God is again speaking to the nation of Hosea, uh, of the nation of Israel through Hosea the prophet. And they're, they're drifting away from God again, and they're needing some correction. And they're just kind of wallowing in their sin and their shame. And so this is what the Lord says. I want you to tell the people of Israel this. Therefore, and, and he's speaking in a, in a metaphorical way here. He says, therefore, I am now going to allure her, speaking of the nation. But he's using a parallel of romance here between a, a man and a wife, a husband and a wife. I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and there speak tenderly to her. There I will give back her vineyards and I will make the valley of Achor into a door of hope. That's God's desire. Whatever our valley of trouble or pain or sin may be, God wants to change that and turn it into a valley of hope. There she will respond to me as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. That's a verse that I want to encourage you to sit with and ask the Lord to speak to you. He desires to turn whatever we've been through, whatever it is, into a door of hope as we turn to him and not away from him. As our hearts are softened and we invite his light to come in, it becomes a doorway of hope. And so as we wrap up Lent over the next week or two, uh, I want to encourage you, whether you've fasted or not uh, during this time, I want to encourage you just to really press in with the Lord and spend some time, sit with him. And allow him to sit with you and to speak to you, to break up fallow ground in your heart and to invite you into preparing your heart for the life he wants to bring. We're moving toward Easter. Easter is a celebration of all of the abundance and all of the goodness and all of the forgiveness that God has purchased for us. And it is going to be this year a powerful day of celebration, a powerful time. But let's prepare our hearts for that. And let's identify anything, anything that needs to be brought before the Lord. Part of our routine, our rhythm here in our church is to end every 
uh, service with the Lord's Supper, with coming to the communion table. And we want to do that today.